The FT. Why U.S. voters are suing Dr. Obama. An ambulance stops by the roadside to help a man suffering from a heart attack. After desperate measures, the patient survives. Brought into hospital, he then makes a protracted and partial recovery. Then, two years later, far from feeling grateful, he sues the paramedics and the doctors. If it were not for their interference, he insists, he would be as good as new already. As for the heart attack, it was a minor event. He would have been far better off if he'd been left altogether alone. That is the situation in which Dr. Barack Obama finds himself. A large part of the American public has long since forgotten the gravity of the financial heart attack that hit the U.S. in the autumn of 2008. The Republicans have convinced many voters that the intervention by the Democrats, not the catastrophe George W. Bush bequeathed, explains the malaise. It is a propaganda coup. Does President Obama deserve blame for this outcome? No and yes. No, because his treatment was right in principle. Yes, because it was too cautious in practice. It is essential to remember the context. Large financial crises do long-lasting damage. As the University of Maryland's Carmen Reinhart and Harvard University's Kenneth Rogoff note in an update of previous work, and I quote, more often than not, the aftermath of severe financial crises shares three characteristics. First, asset market collapses are deep and prolonged. Second, it is associated with profound declines in output and employment. Third, the real value of government debt tends to explode. End of quote. As ever, the risks built up, disregarded in the boom, and materialized in the bust. As Professor Reinhardt and Vincent Reinhardt of the American Enterprise Institute note in a paper presented at this year's Economic Policy Symposium at Jackson Hole, the U.S. shared with several other high-income countries, notably Spain, the U.K. and Ireland, a massive rise in house prices, credit and the financial sector's balance sheet. Between 1997 and 2007, real U.S. house prices rose by 87%. The ratio of U.S. financial sector debt to gross domestic product rose by 52%. And the ratio of total private debt to GDP rose by 101%. This was surely a disaster waiting to happen. What has made managing the bust far more difficult is the fact demonstrated in the Reinhardt and Reinhardt paper that this has been by far the biggest global financial crisis since the Second World War. So how well has the U.S. economy done in this crisis? Quite well in some respects, above all on overall economic output, less well in others, notably unemployment. On average, real GDP per head at purchasing power parity, fell by 9.3% in the previous crises studied by Professors Reinhardt and Rogoff. This time it fell by 5.4% in the U.S. The unemployment rate rose by 7 percentage points in previous crises on average. This time U.S. unemployment rose by 5.7 percentage points. This contrast between relatively poor U.S. performance on unemployment and better performance on output by historical standards, carries over to comparisons between the U.S. and other large high-income countries. 
Despite being at the epicenter of the crisis, the U.S. actually experienced a smaller proportional decline in output per head than other large high-income countries, except France. But unemployment rose far faster in the U.S. than elsewhere. The explanation is that U.S. productivity growth was exceptionally fast, above all in 2009. What then does this performance tell us about U.S. policy? The answer is that it did quite well in terms of what it did address, but far less so in terms of what it did not address. As Lawrence Summers, the President's Chief Economic Advisor, noted at the FT's View from the Top conference in New York on October the 7th, the administration's focus was on, and I quote, the return of stability, confidence and the flow of credit to support strong recovery, end of quote. The elements were support for the financial system through the Troubled Asset Relief Program, inherited from the previous administration, financial guarantees, and stress tests on banking institutions, the fiscal stimulus, and the actions of the Federal Reserve to sustain the flow of credit. By their nature, such policies work by sustaining demand and so output. Their impact on employment and unemployment is indirect. As it turned out, productivity growth was so strong that not too bad a performance in terms of output by historical standards, failed to prevent the surge in unemployment. One would have expected supporters of the free market to conclude that the U.S. economy, and particularly its labor market, remains highly flexible under this socialist president. One would have expected them to conclude, too, that more stimulus was needed. After all, it was really quite modest. Fiscal stimulus was less than 6% of GDP and so accounts for less than a fifth of the cumulative deficits of 2009, 2010 and 2011, while monetary policy is caught in a liquidity trap. The truth is not that policy was foolhardy and failed, but that it was too timid and so could not succeed. A big mistake was the failure to address the labour market directly perhaps by temporarily slashing payroll taxation. There were other mistakes too. The effort to reduce the overhang of household debt should have been far stronger. Yet even the hated TARP looks remarkably effective in hindsight. As Mr Summers noted, its cost to the taxpayer looks likely to be just one-third of 1% of GDP. This is far less than the cost of the bailout of the savings and loans institutions in the 1980s. It is also far less than the direct fiscal cost of comparable crises elsewhere. Unfortunately, the Republicans have succeeded in persuading a large enough portion of the American public that if the patient had been left entirely alone, he would be in perfect health today. But this is surely a fairy story. Yet voters, naturally, pay little attention to calamities averted. They focus only on how far experience falls short of what they desire. Mr Obama gains no credit for the former and much blame for the latter. His aspirational rhetoric no doubt worsened the disappointment. The President's willingness to ask for too little was, it turns out, a huge strategic error. It allows his opponents to argue that the Democrats had what they wanted – which then simply failed. If the president had failed to get what he demanded, he could now argue that the outcome was not his fault. With the political stalemate expected, further action will now be blocked. A lost decade seems quite likely. 
That would be a calamity for the US and the world. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.